We have left the land and taken to our ship. We have burned our bridges. More, we have burned our land behind us. Now, little ship, take care. The ocean lies all around you. True, it is not always roaring. But there will be times when you will know that it is infinite and that there is nothing more terrible than infinity and that in that infinite you will embrace the void. I find this void quite calming actually. It's like this time the Xanax took me. Your sense of self is crumbling and it's taking the void down with it. It's like I'm in a black void, trying to reach the new story. This concept of morality is a very interesting human characteristic. What is real? How do you define real? If you're talking about what you can feel, what you can smell, what you can taste and see. Warning, this podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like they're people. Welcome, friends, to episode 107 of Embrace the Void, where I want to say fun things, but the Catholic church bells have left me with nothing but rage. I am your host, Aaron. Joining me this week is a fellow traveler in the endless gender wars. We discuss various ways that feminist discourse on gender and sex have gone off the rails. So let's go deny some science. My guest this week is Dr. Rachel McKinney, Assistant Professor of Philosophy and Program Director of Politics, Philosophy, and Economics at Suffolk University. Rachel, would you like to say hi to the void? Hello to the void. Uh, I'm Rachel. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Thank you so much for coming back, actually. We we did a recording when we were talking about some of the things that we're going to talk about today, and there's just been so much that's built up on top of it, and we felt like we really wanted to go at this fresh so um, yeah life life moves fast <laughs> life tw- especially twitter apparently twitter right moves so fast. <laughs> yes folks should know uh dr rachel here is a frontline fighter in the ongoing gender wars that appear to have broken out all over oh, twitter um so we're going to discuss that that practical praxis side of all of this as mm-hmm. well as some of the uh, critical theory feminism things that we we talked about before that I think are really important to understanding here. But I really do think uh, starting off with this Twitter stuff is important. People might not understand why it's important. It seems important to me because a lot of the major figures that are doing philosophical work that is being debated before the Supreme Court now, for example, are also having insane batshit crazy fights on twitter and you're in the middle of a lot of this so could you maybe explain like how you got from a philosophical background in i guess in gender studies i believe right so let's back up a little bit right before we get to twitter what is your background that leads you into all of this yeah so i'm a philosopher my degree is in philosophy I study social political philosophy, philosophy of language, feminism. Um, so I've that's that's sort of the nexus of stuff that I'm my research is focused on. But lately, I've also been looking at um, the way uh, language is embedded in social and economic practices, how it's used by the state, how it's used by various different institutions. Mm-hmm. But I, you know, I've when you do a, a degree in philosophy, you do a ton of coursework in things that mm-hmm. are not specifically related to your research areas. So I've done coursework in philosophy of biology. I've done coursework in metaphysics and epistemology and really sort of meat and potatoes, uh, you know, analytic philosophy too. So it's um, Mm -hmm. sometimes people sort of get this idea that if you do feminism, that you come out of a world that's very postmodern or whatever, that's Mm -hmm. not, that's not really the intellectual traditions that I, I come out of. I'm conversant with those traditions, but that's not really my scene so much. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so from how did you get from that world into being condemned to Twitter hell? What, what, oh what, is, the, what is the trajectory that gets you there, right? Did you start oh off like, God. 
<laughs> well, I was mostly just sort of baffled and befuddled by mm-hmm. the um, representation of feminism that was active on Twitter or the representation of the, some of the, yeah, the representation of feminism from a mm-hmm. lot of different parties on Twitter. Can you say a little bit more like which, which different parties and what pictures you think they were putting forward? Yeah, so um, uh, I think I I was baffled by the representation of, of feminism coming out of like the grievance studies people mm-hmm. uh, of feminism as anti-rational, uh, as like not a genuine method of inquiry, as dogmatic, mm-hmm. as yeah, th- those were some of the things. And the other thing that yeah, so that was one that was one sort of place where I was like, what is going on here? And then the other sort of object of befuddlement was the representation of of gender uh, and sex coming out of the gender quote, quote unquote gender critical feminism. Okay. Um, that, Alternative title for turfs, right? That yeah, yeah. We, you we know, should, we I, should try to translate as much as possible. Yeah. Like, like, let's let's imagine that you know I'm not someone who's compulsively on Twitter all the time oh as well. God, there's- so right. much background there's, there's so, so much, much to explain i know i know so we gotta keep <laughs> slowing it down and backing it up right so so the the grievance study folks are folks like james Lindsay and yes. pluck rose and yes. peter uh, uh bogosian excuse me right so those are the yes. three amigos of the um yes. the gender studies uh squared hoax right which we yes. have talked about on this show before that was the yes. the origin of our bit about penis demons so, um, <laughs> all right. So you've got that group and then they're yeah, so, technically so was, separate, right? Yeah. So that was actually probably the catalyst that I was, you know, I was like on Twitter, just like living my Twitter life. And then I was mm-hmm. just like, totally sort of like, what are these people talking about? <laughs> um, and so, and so that, that was sort of probably the catalyst for why I became a little bit more, um, open about my, um, with my opinions on that stuff. Uh-huh. And then it goes from there to disagreeing yeah, so that, with people yeah. who identify as feminists, right? Right, right. So people who identify as feminists, particularly um, analytic philosophers who identify as feminists, I don't know how much training in feminist theory they actually have, uh, but who um, would describe themselves as having concerns with the ways in which changes to law, social institutions, and social order, social norms around gender nonconforming people and trans people have been proceeding. That's mm-hmm. sort of how I think that that's a fair represent. That's how I think they think of themselves. Right. And it seems like they are the more interesting people to have. I mean, like horrifying in their own sorts of situ in some situations, but like, the grievance studies folks are not even uh, they're they're addressing a ridiculous straw man of feminism right. whereas you know this create this is more of a uh inter you know interseen kind of conflict about what what do we mean by feminism what right. is that how does that apply especially to transgender issues um, right i mean age, it's right? I, a conversation that maybe we'll have in a little bit is about what is feminism are these people feminists um I don't know how many of them have always thought of themselves as feminists versus that is sort of a new term that they've come to. Um, uh, But yeah, I mean, they think the most charitable representation of this debate is as a, as, as a discussion within feminism. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that's right. And so how does this debate like play out on Twitter, would you say, for someone like for the people in our group like who have reasonably stayed away from Twitter? Yeah. Like So so maybe I will just sort of describe some of I'll use some adjectives. Okay. <laughs> um I've um before I maybe describe the positions, I maybe I'll just say that it's proceeded in in ways that feel very melodramatic mm-hmm. um and very personalized. Mm-hmm. It's very sort of system one-y. So, so Daniel Kahneman is this really great behavioral economist who has this distinction between two ways that we think. Sometimes we think in ways that are fast and ways that are slow. Um, mm-hmm. Thinking fast is sort of what he calls system one. So it's based on heuristics. It's based on sort of um, gut instincts. We do it really quickly. 
Um, system two is sort of slower, more inferential. The conversations that I've had about this stuff on Twitter are super thinking fast. They're super mm-hmm. system one uh, That's just the medium affords that, I think. But I think it's also because these are topics that really bring up a lot of fear with people, a lot of sexual anxiety. I think a lot of people are are working through trauma of one sort or another. I was, I was going to say, could you just give some like concrete, I, I totally agree with you that it does get into that system one kind of style. And how does that sort of play out in a very concrete level in like specific tweet formats? Do you feel oh, like, do you have like yeah. certain patterns of tweets that you see a lot of sort of, cause that's over and over again. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I see, I see a lot of, um, so, I mean, so just a lot of personal insult, um, that that people are sort of um you know if you disagree with them that you are doing it to suck up to men or that you are handmaidens of the patriarchy i've been called i've been called it before like Mm -hmm. as a joke about pronouns which i'm i'm a cis woman like that's like like they have one joke that's the one joke they have is to like try to insult people based on pronoun usage now, do you get that mostly from male sort of? No, no, I get it from women. Well, okay. you know, it's, but the other thing is that because it's Twitter, you don't really know who's actually on the other side, right? Sure. I guess um, so, I, I, yeah, we can talk phenomenologically in terms of are the Twitter handles presenting as yeah. trying to be a female Twitter handle or a male Twitter handle? I, you know, I it's it's sort of it's a, a equal opportunity. <laughs> uh huh. Insults, as far as I can tell, are pretty equal opportunity. The most intense personalized invective I've gotten from has been from people that represent themselves as, as cis women. Um, and are these like larger accounts as well as smaller accounts? Or do you feel like larger accounts play yeah, a different it's, game? It's, it's both. I mean, I, uh, I don't, um, I don't think I've been insulted in those ways from larger accounts um Mm -hmm. i think the thing that larger accounts have done is they have like taken something i've said out of context and then retweeted it and then be Mm -hmm. like look at this like you know look at this handmaiden (laughs) of the patriarchy or whatever um they sort of put me on blast um Mm -hmm. but that's sort of what i've gotten from that um maybe what i'll say about the sort of fear and trauma and stuff is that Part of what's going on is I think a lot of people who are survivors of sexual assault, and I, you know, I say this as somebody who has worked as a, um, a crisis counselor for years in college, so I, I have experience with this. But I think that there's a fair amount of sort of theorizing from that place of trauma that is un- totally understandable. And, Mm -hmm. you know, not irrational, Mm -hmm. but we can't build policy (laughs) out of the ways of thinking that we fall into when we're trying to navigate fear and trauma. Right. So um, I I don't know if that makes sense, but but that's sort of one of one of the things that I've picked up on is that there's a lot of anger um, there's also just a lot of fear and a lot of sort of, it's a real sense of, of avoidance and protection. Right. I, I do agree that I think that, and, and, and I think you can even talk about that while giving it a charitable read and say mm-hmm. that there, these people are coming from that place of fear and we want to be sympathetic to that and we don't want them to feel silenced about those experiences even though we do i do agree with you that policy wise that can't necessarily be the driving force it does mean that we have to when we convey the information convey it in the most respectful and compassionate ways possible it seems like yeah which is hard especially when people are coming at you with personal invectives and things yeah and you know i've really tried to have like a just the facts ma'am like mm-hmm. kind of attitude for a lot of this stuff, but do you find it helps? Do I find it helps? Um, yeah. Well, to the extent that I think part of part of one of the failures is a failure to ex- to 
read and engage with the evidence base that is available to us from 40, 50 years of research. Right. I think a, a, a just the facts, ma'am approach is, is really important that, you know, we don't, we are not in like skepticism land, right? Right. <laughs> we are in a, a, a land where we actually have um, a lot of knowledge that we've built up through social science, through work in medicine and public health and public safety that is available to us in thinking through these kinds of, of questions. And we don't have to, um, yeah. So, so that's that's where I think uh, a just the facts ma'am approach can be useful. Right. I. It does seem that at least certainly when you're engaging with the folks from who who aren't coming at it just from the the emotional kinds of places, but but believe that they're arguing from a rational or scientific place, that it often seems like what's going on is that they are relying on heuristics rather than that sort of body of data. And then they're often very cynical of that particular body of data and view it as, even if they are familiar with it, view it as corrupted by a kind of widespread ideology. Oh my Um, gosh. Yeah. It's real. It's really, it makes it very difficult actually to build common ground Mm -hmm. where, you know, I've, I was just, you know, I'll be in conversations where I'll be like, okay, here's this like, you know, here's something by an endocrinologist from behavioral brain and behavioral science that's been peer reviewed and has cited all these, all this, you know, this is Mm -hmm. like pretty well established stuff. Or, you know, here are these like, the thing that really gets me is that I will give examples of things from very mainstream um, media outlets like the BBC or NPR. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, they will say, they will say like, why should I trust that? It's a right. very fake, fake news. The trust deficit that people have for anything having to do with sex and gender from, even from people who are credentialed experts who have degrees, who spend their lives working on this stuff. The trust deficit there is really mm-hmm. significant. If there were like one or two key empirical side, before we get to the philosophical theory side, right? One or two key, what you would consider scientific findings that you wish that people could come to accept and that you feel like would have a substantial change on the path of these discussions. If it was common ground, what do you, what would you point to? Like, what are the things that you really wish you could get people to, to buy into from the past 50 years or so? Yeah, that's a really good question. So, I mean, the, the the model that I have been really influenced by is Ann Foster Sterling's model. So she's a biologist at um, uh, Brown who's developed an explicitly sort of developmental model of sex gender, where sex gender is this complex system. It's got a lot of different moving parts. Um, it's the way that chromosomes interact with uh uh, hormones in the uh, in utero is very complicated. There's there's a lot of um, reason to think that these markers for sex, <laughs> so chromosomes, primary sex characteristics, secondary sex characteristics, gonads, um, mm-hmm. hormonal profile, um, those crosscut and they're dynamic. <laughs> so they're not, okay. they're not, they're not. So t- take hormones, for instance. Um, hormones are not, there's lots of evidence to suggest that hormones are not like a static trait. They're a parameter. <laughs> so it's not. What, what does that mean? What do you mean by a so, parameter? So um, uh, you might think that like uh, your hormones, so, you know, testosterone, estrogen, um, mm-hmm. there's just like a fact of the matter. If you're a girl, you have this set, you have the pink ones. If you're a boy, you have the blue ones. And that's mm-hmm. like, there might, they might fluctuate. Like, you know, uh, if you're, if you're a girl, the pink ones might fluctuate with ovulation and menstruation and pregnancy or whatever. Um, uh, and, uh, but you, like you, that's a stable sort of trait that, um, which hormones you have and how much of them you have is like a stable trait. And it's like bimodal. Mm-hmm. You might think uh-huh. that, right? From the work that I've seen, that's not true. That it's just, it's not the case that there is like a stable trait of hormone, uh, hormonal profile that we can use for, you. it's better to model it as a, as a parameter 
which is just the the claim that um, it varies and when it varies, it affects other things in the system. It's it's not it's not sort of stable and bimodal. Okay. Um, so so the person that I like on this is Sarah von Anders, who's a um, maybe I just mentioned her, who's an endocrinologist who works on this stuff. And what's really funny is that you know so think you might think that like um, you know girls have the pink hormones, boys have the blue hormones, and they are sort of at different ends of a field, right? Well, mm-hmm. what it what actually looks like is that like girls and boys have really similar like profiles, but you know who has like totally outlier profile is pregnant women. So it's like it's like okay. it's like non it's like like non-pregnant non-pregnant people and pregnant people right. <laughs> are the are the two significant categories for though though I mean so I guess I'm trying to understand this is compatible it seems like with saying that men have a substantially amount especially a substantial more substantially more testosterone on average than women for example yeah 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 yeah. so um i i really suggest that people go and look at van ander's work okay and we'll we'll, yeah we'll try to link link it in the show notes for sure in terms of the stuff yeah but that's not inconsistent with with the fact that men have more testosterone on average Mm -hmm. but what this means for research on sex and sort of what this means for research on sort of in medicine is that using using you know bi- biological sex rather mm-hmm. than somebody's sort of hormone parameters can actually be can confuse <laughs> or undermine what you're trying to study because okay. because if you're looking for like let's say that you are trying to investigate you know uh, you have some research question that's like, how does this particular ac- activity affect this particular production of this particular hormone or something about the reception of that particular hormone? And if the two categories that you use for investigating that are like male and female, <laughs> that's not necessarily going to give you the same results if what you were looking at was like people with this particular hormonal system rather than that particular hormonal system, no matter what sex they have. I does that see. make sense? So- yeah, so they're two. They're really different, ca- right? So, typically, when you when you're having these debates, orthogonal. <laughs> what they're orthogonal, right? And typically, when you're having these debates, people will say, "Well, the biological sex." They'll conflate it with hormones, or they'll conflate it with certain phenotypic traits. And you're saying that, like, all of those traits are, are orthogonal, even to this biological conception of of male and female. So like chromosomes well, and testosterones can vary. Is that sort of what we're getting at here? Yeah. Well, they're not all orthogonal. There are two distinct, you know, developmental, you know, there, there, there's a fact of the matter about, you know, how things tend to go in utero, how things tend to go in terms of fetal development. Mm-hmm. But when you have adults <laughs> and you're trying to like determine, is this person a man or a woman, the traits that are used as markers for that often do cross cut. So you can't just take like a salivary have test test hormones as, as a way of figuring out whether Mm -hmm. someone is a man or a woman. Okay. That Um, makes sense. Yeah. And, and, and I think, you know, it's useful to have this stuff, but as we'll transition into talking about the philosophy a little bit, it seems like even this is sort of beside the point in the sense that like the major question is, not, you know, is there such a thing as biological sex, which it seems like I think people all to some degree or another agree does exist. Yeah. What it means yeah. is different for different right. in different contexts, it seems like, right? But the main question is gonna be what is the relationship between biological sex and uh gender or or right. right. So Right, right. You had a tweet, I think, a little while ago that I thought was particularly relevant to this that maybe you can unpack some about how Feminism has been for a long time the project of de-reifying of gender and that that sort of is changing and flipping with the gender critical folks. Can you explain sort of what what all of that really means? Yeah, good. So one of the projects of feminism, as I've sort of learned about it, read about it, grown up with it, um, has been sort of a, a debunking project in the sense that the world is going to tell you a lot of things are sort of, this is just how they are. 
mm-hmm. and how they how they need to be. They're they're um, uh, Essent- obvious, essentialist, and inevitable. Stories. Yeah, 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 yeah. And we have good evidence that that's really simplistic. Like you know, and I, I'm I'm sort of leaning on a lot of the empirical stuff in this conversation because I I, I do think that that's one of the pressure points here mm-hmm. is that as I've sort of always my sort of orientation to this has always been like, no, the world is actually a lot more complicated than that. The like, number one, the world is actually a lot more complicated than that. Um, those are generalizations um, that aren't actually representative or two, you're attributing things to some deep natural fact or some like deep fact about like, you know, again, this sort of like our essence is, I think is the word you used that when you think about it, I don't think is borne out as being true. Like it's, it's just, mm-hmm. is it correct to say that this debunking argument is to me, this is, I I was taught this as like the essence of the second wave of like to use essence again in a different way. Right. Yeah, the, the, right. Co- the core of the second wave feminist theories, right. You had, first wave feminism was like Wollstonecraft arguing that women were kind of separate but equal in various Mm -hmm. ways and then you get to like Beauvoir and it's this idea of um, becoming a woman rather than being born a one right Right. is that accurate yeah that's exactly it that's exactly it so um, I think with the second wave you had people who were sort of looking at looking at the ways that People in um, history of ideas have represented women, have represented um, women's lives and their capacities as like in a very sort of naturalized way that like there's there's just this sort of fact. Of, there's a d- d- deep fact of human nature that mm-hmm. women are weak or a mm-hmm. um, right. uh, uh, deep fact of human nature that um, women are sort of um you know, hysterical, or um, they're just made made for nurturing. Right. And so a big project of feminism, second wave feminism, has been to distinguish questions about biology and reproduction, on the one hand, from questions about social roles, expectations, norms, on the other, because part of what we're interested in is the causal relationship between those two things. So is it the case that like some facts about differences in biology cause Mm -hmm. these social roles or is it the fact that we have some social norms, expectations and social roles that like causes people to pursue some ways of life, but not others. Right. Or to like, so um, a good example, one example might be something like norms of femininity and immunology. So, okay. so you might think that like, well, women just get sick more often. Like, why mm. is it that women might get just get sick more often? And if you're looking at like some data, it just looks like women get sick a lot more often, or they have like all this sort of weird stuff going on with their in- immunology. What's going on with that? Well, um, if it's the case that through uh, childhood, women don't get dirty. Girls don't get dirty (laughs) because they're like Uh not allowed to go dig in the dirt and they, you know, always have to be worried about like, you know, what they're wearing or whether they're going to get hurt, then they are going to develop different immunological profiles. Interesting. That's that's, an interesting example. Yeah. Yeah. So so that's, that's a case where getting the causation is actually really important and you can't getting the causation right is really important. And you can't do that if you aren't able to distinguish the you know the sort of biological mm-hmm. stuff from the social role expectation norm stuff that's a really great example because i think we often think of examples like you know why aren't more women encoding is it because of biology right that's the right. kind of causal questions that we're often trying to and so it's these very big scale social examples where the 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 conflict seems to be between deep-seated genetics on one side and you know um constructed social behaviors on the other side whereas what you're describing is more like you can look at the biology of specific individuals and see how Mm -hmm. those biologies are impacted by Mm -hmm. the social Mm -hmm. norms that they are forced into and Mm -hmm. and yeah that's really great that's um 
And you have to be, you have to realize that we are always entities in environments. Sure. Right. right. Like, like humans just are these complex systems. We die if we don't interact with our environment. Right. Mm-hmm. We, we have right. to eat. We have to breathe. We only develop from input. <laughs> right. So, so you have to take that feedback stuff seriously as a matter of sort of like scientific investigation right so is it fair to say then philosophically that what what starts as a project of trying to cleave off things that we've been told are part of the essence of womanhood right trying to separate that mm-hmm. out and see if there's any true essence that what we ultimately come to is there's no essential features of womanhood or any kind of gender. Is that accurate? Yeah. I mean, that's not, oh man. That's <laughs> like, that's, that's the, like, that's like a brain explosion uh-huh. question. Um, so, um, I, you know, we, we need, we need concepts and categories to get around in the world. Mm-hmm. I, we're not nihilists. We shouldn't be nihilists. <laughs> we, um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm but, mostly with um, you. I mostly agree. I, right, I do think but that is that last five percent? There's that last five percent where you're like, well, why not? I um, mean, I, should, I think we should be nihilists about gender, but I do think that, like, I agree with you that it plays an important performative role. Uh, it just seems like it's uh, we we, we yeah, sort of have good. we've gotten to a place where it's like it can be whatever it wants because the only role it plays is performative. Right. Yeah. So. um I just take it to be a fact of the matter that there are things like norms, expectations, conventions, social roles, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, like that, like those. That's part of the furniture of the universe, sure. right? This is this is going to be good. We'll put a pin in this for when we get to our realism, anti-realism lightning oh, round. I no. think. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's okay. great. So hypothesis, hypothesis. Yeah. <laughs> These are part of the furniture of the of the universe, right? Okay. Roles, so you think, norm, right, expectation. Right. Gender, gender is real as a construct. Yeah, it's real as a construct. Um, insofar as you know, there are lots. There are lots of you know. We take you know, landlord is a role. <laughs> there are such things as landlords, right? Right. That that's or you know that's sort of how I how I think of think of this stuff is in terms of either some sort of social role some sort of sort of relational social relation. Um, So you're a landlord in virtue of the relations that you stand in to tenants and property and money Mm -hmm. or gender as a set of a a kind of habituation or something that you do a kind of performance. Right. Um, Right. I don't take those things to be inconsistent. Like it's kind of all of those things. Mm hmm. But it's so it's this not is, like this is the de-reifying project though, right? This right. is the the deconstruction. It right. seems like. So right. what and then is the? I'm curious. What then is the re-reconstruction? Right, the re-reifying that you believe that gender critical feminists yeah. are doing at this point in the process. Good. So it was really important for a lot of the um, earlier iterations of feminism to explain and. Again, this is reasons-based. This is on the basis of evidence and argument. It's not like ideological, but to understand women's oppression in terms of social relations, not in terms of like any facts about like our biology. Mm-hmm. So what is the origin of women's impression? That's a really big question. Um, here are some of the answers that historically feminists have given. So uh, Engels and those feminists who follow him think that the origin of women's oppression is in social and economic relations. So Engels says that the world historical defeat of the female sex um, <laughs> occurred with the invention of the particular social institution of the inheritance of property. So in order to leave property to your kids, if you're a man, you need to know that um, your kids uh, like are yours. It demands knowledge of paternity, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But that's a, like, so that, that is the, but the fact of um, the social institution of inheritance, that's a social fact, right? We don't come into the world like with like, um, like, 
natural laws about who gets what after we die. All right, right. We we right? develop them. We develop uh, I mean, them. I, we codify yeah, we, them in law. We can have a separate question about moral truths existing right. in some kind of way prior to. But I agree with you that like what you're describing is this evolution by a lot, you know, like behaviorally of um, advanced species uh, surviving and adapting and being more effective right. by passing on stuff to things that also yeah, happen so, to be their genetic ancestors. Yeah, so so property, pro- like literally, like 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 stuff in the world. We know that it's not a natural fact that inheritance of property. Um, occurs because there are cultures where you don't leave your stuff after you die to your kids. Right. Like that's just, that's just evidence. (laughs) Right. So, so, so that, that, that would be an explanation, but it would still be an explanation that involves society and social roles and isn't purely biological. Right. Right. So that's, so that's angles. Um, Mm -hmm. Other answers from um, uh sort of other answers have been like, well, the origin of women's oppression was the division of reproductive labor. So we have Mm -hmm. some people that um, have babies, but they also like um, perform subsistence labor. So um, Uh the kinds of agriculture that are necessary to um, keep a household running. So you might think that the origin of women's oppression is in the exploitation of women's reproductive labor. Um, this is a position for, from feminist anthropologists in the 80s. But note that that reproductive labor here as a term doesn't say anything. It, it doesn't require as a necessary condition anything about babies. So you can perform subsistence labor without ever having babies, right? Mm-hmm. And that sure. subsistence labor can be appropriated without you ever having babies, Um Mm-hmm. So, the, so, the, so it's again not doesn't cleave away women specifically, right? People who wouldn't identify necessarily as women could still be right. engaged in that kind of labor, right? Right. Now, that's again that's a historical anthropological question about whether mm-hmm. that was the case. But then you also have this sort of position from this anthropologist that I really like, Gail Rubin, where she says that okay, so we have the sort of raw materials of human bodies. Like, it's just a fact of the matter that there are bodies that look this way, that way, whatever. Some of them have babies, some of them don't. Uh, That's sex. And then we have a set of social roles, social relations, gender. She says the mechanism for turning the sort of bare, raw materials of human bodies into a set of social roles, social expectations, is sexuality. Hmm. So who is allowed to sleep with who? what your taboos around incest are, um, what your uh, um, uh, sort of norms of um, who you are allowed to um, reproduce with or live with, taboos against homosexuality, right? So sexuality is sort of a system that is the mechanism for turning the raw materials of human bodies, sex, into Mm -hmm. a set of social roles, which is gender. That's interesting um, because I think, you know, the 101 version of this that I was sometimes taught was gender expression and sexuality are wholly separate. They're, again, a sort of kind of orthogonal categories. And it would seem like what you're describing would suggest that if not being the same thing, they are more closely related in some situations than that. Is yeah. That right? Yeah. I mean, I take a very sort of I'm like a var- variableist on this stuff okay. and a contextualist on this stuff. So you really need to zoom in into particular cultures, particular communities to see how these things function. Um, So the way that we do things around here is not the way that, you know, people in New Guinea do things. Um, Mm -hmm. And so the question of the relationship between gender, what were the gender expression and or what were the two terms that you just used? Yeah, gender expression and sexuality. And sexuality. Yeah. So the relationship between those two things is going to be embedded in uh, a a set of other social meanings and social relations of a particular time and place. Mm -hmm. So what relationship those two things have to each other requires us to do like some some anthropology. Right. So it seems like all of these accounts are still heavily culture dependent. Right. So, yeah. 
Yeah. So but where, is, where where do the gender critical folks fit into this? Like, are they adapting any of these traditions? Would no, you say they're not actually adapting any of no, them? No, they think it's all Pomo gibberish as far as okay. I can tell. So what tradition um, are they coming out of, do you feel like? Do they, that is do an they... excellent question. That is an excellent question. So this has been one of my big, you know, I, I started this in thinking, you know, what is going on from this real place of befuddlement and bafflement? And one of the reasons for that bafflement is that I couldn't figure out who these people's feminist foremothers were. Mm-hmm. Like, who do you see as, you know, I know who my feminist foremothers are, <laughs> you know, I, but like, what, like, who do you see as influencing your way of thinking about this stuff? And for a lot of them, it's just radio silence. Like, I don't think they really have much of a grip on this stuff. For others, they have a, the, the touchstones for them are people from this sort of scene in the 70s called cultural feminism or sometimes mm. called radical feminism. Um, uh, Mary Daly would be one example um uh, uh sheila jeffries janice raymond are sort of two other people that are sort of in the mix here that and then the the other person that's sort of in the mix here is this really hetero like marxist feminist but a kind of iconoclastic marxist feminist shulamith firestone okay so she wrote the dialectic of sex where she basically says that you know there there is something to be said for the fact that you know that that biology is what um, that that women are slaves to their biology. Mm. But uh-huh. what should we do about that? According to Shulamith Firestone, we like totally reorient human biology with technology. <laughs> oh, so she's like transhumanist in that kind of <laughs> right, way, right? Exactly, exactly. But it's really funny to see this sort of group of people read the dialectic of sex. And the lesson they huh. take from it is that, yeah, we are naturally oppressed. And so therefore we need to like take protective measures against the invasion of um, changes to social order that would desegregate the sexes or something like that. Yeah, I do see a lot of that, right? The charitable read being that like, you know, women were uh, dealing with oppression in a variety of environments and so needed to create functional safe spaces for them to not be experiencing that oppression, which is mm-hmm. something that, that the left gen tends to support for a variety of oppressed groups. And that now the conflict is that um, the inclusion, especially of trans women into those spaces is viewed as a sort of male invasion, which is how you end right. up being a handmaiden of the patriarchy. Right, right, right. Yeah. So another resource that I would suggest on on this question of like, um, mm-hmm. you know, group segregation is Elizabeth Anderson's The Imperative of Integration. Okay. So it's not just black separatists that make arguments for separatism, right? Mm-hmm. It's 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 also white segregationists. Sure. <laughs> um, and um. So she's got a really nice discussion about why, from the demands of justice, um, both of those approaches um, are found wanting. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I'm I'm really sympathetic to the approach she takes there. That's not to say that people can't organize themselves, shouldn't organize themselves, etc. But when we start thinking about public accommodations and the laws that regulate mm-hmm. public accommodations. Um, I become very suspicious about these claims to um, group separatism. Right. And so like, for example, uh, Kathleen Stock's arguments are being used. I, I alluded earlier mm-hmm. in a case before the Supreme Court about whether in, I think, employment people can enforce gender separate uh, dress codes. Right. And that, right, right. And that can have downstream implications for lots of people. And it's particularly weird, I think, because I I think Stock herself is lesbian and that there is this, this contingent, especially of um, 
people who are very pro-homosexuality and seem Mm -hmm. to be supportive of homosexual rights, but then are very critical of the uh, extension of that to transgender individuals. It comes out in weird places. Like I've seen, for example, her arguing that like, it's okay if more um, gender non-conforming lesbians are harassed in bathrooms, if that's the necessary consequence of transgendered individuals being harassed in bathrooms. Right. 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 And so I, I don't think that these people realize that they're putting themselves in the line of fire, that cis women are Mm. in the line of fire, that butch lesbians (laughs) are in the line of fire for this stuff. Um, Okay. So you don't think that they just, they, 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 you think that it will stay compart, they think that it will stay compartmentalized. They either think it's going to stay compartmentalized, um, or they think the threats to them are um, exaggerated, mm-hmm. or they think it's um, changing topics. Um, but what we've seen, in, and I, I think also some of this is just like differences of, of location. So like in the US, we just had this big conversation about bathroom bills, right? right? And right. Um, what happened with the conversation about bathroom bills is that there was this bathroom panic <laughs> Where cis women who were like wearing basketball shorts or had short hair or whatever were harassed and driven out of public women's restrooms by by bigots, mm-hmm. right? Because right. they thought or they pretended to think that those cis women were trans, uh, were trans women, um, right? But. So I, I think it's just maybe myopia or like being sort of not seeing the forest for the trees. Um, but this is exactly what's going on in this um, Supreme Court case where it's mm-hmm. like if they rule that employers can mandate different dress codes for men and women, that means that cis women <laughs> can be right. fired for not dressing feminine enough. Right. And that's why I think that it's crazy that like these things that they imagine these things will stay separate because it is this the philosophical background to this is once you start to say these are things that are essential to being of this particular gender that that is immediately starts cutting back towards separate spheres and reinforced gender norms. Right, right, exactly, exactly. So um, I don't know. I think there's a lot of variability in how knowing the different mm-hmm. participants are that these might happen and how how much they think, well, that's just sort of collateral damage that we have to ex- ex- accept um, mm-hmm. because this, this threat is so big. Um, but to me, that just sounds like a reductio ad absurdum. Like, right, exactly. Like, like, if it's the case that what you're defending targets the very people that you're claiming it's protecting, then that's a reason to reject the argument. Mm-hmm. That's a, very well um, put. I totally agree. Yeah. Um, so I notice we're running a little bit short on time. Do you have sort of final thoughts on, like, where where do you see this discourse going in the next 10 years? I mean, oh, I know we, 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 can't, we can't know, but, like... Do you feel like it's, you know, trend lines are right direction, wrong direction, or some mix thereof? And like, you know, what can we what expect I would like, or anything? I think, yeah, I, um, I, hmm, I try to be an optimist. So I'm really hoping that the LGBT coalition in the U.S. proves to, proves to be, proves to have more unity um, mm-hmm. than it, it has in the U.K., Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm really hoping that people will sort of understand that you know if if they come from tr- for trans women now they're going to be coming for gender nonconforming cis women tomorrow they're coming for any <laughs> you know any uh, anybody who's who's not uh, a traditionalist about social order is mm-hmm. uh, sort of in the line of fire for a lot of this stuff and I'm I'm. I'm really hoping that the balance of public opinion in the U.S. is such that we don't turn trans women into scapegoats in the way that they have been in other contexts. And I'm really hoping that we can avoid 
the sort of media circuses and sensationalism that have accompanied some of the some of the crises that have happened in Canada. And, you know, I'm, I'm really hoping that we are able to uh, orient ourselves on terms of solidarity mm-hmm. and on terms uh, that recognize that we operate on shared fate. Right. My yeah. fate is my fate is tied to the fate of uh, trans women and whether, you know, they can be fired from their job like that impacts me. Um, it shouldn't be the only argument, right? The the theoretical right. stuff we've laid out, the empirical stuff we've laid out matters too. Right. But if, if right. you need a little bit of extra motivation, it seems worth noting right. that like... It's in right, your we interest. All go, we all go down together. <laughs> right. Yeah. And maybe the other thing I'll say on this point, um, just because this was like the most recent, like crazy, crazy Twitter fight that I was just in, is that... Um, it's the one with Andy. Oh my God! I don't know who that guy is, but he's he was... actually a big guy in in the um, skeptic community in oh, Lon- in in England, where I think this fight is going poorly. Where my impression oh, is that, God. like, you know, a lot of folks over there are are much more into the like I'll be skeptic, but I still believe these traditional things, and this yeah. this fight is going really badly. Yeah. So, so part, part of what's going on, I think, is that the state, the U.S. state right now, um, biological sex, uh, quote unquote, is established by what's on your birth certificate, right? Mm-hmm. The Trump administration wants to change that to uh, something like, um, uh, you know, biological and genetic characteristics. Mm-hmm. That would be a disaster for everybody. That mm-hmm. would be that would be a disaster for um, intersex people. It would be a disaster for gender nonconforming cis people, not just trans people. Right. And in this conversation that I was having with him, he didn't seem to realize what a threat that is to everybody. That the state, he's like, oh, well, we still need definitions of biological sex. Like, Whatever definition you want for biological sex, mm-hmm. if you try to give the state the power to enforce that via um, some sort of like genetic testing or genital genital checks or whatever, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like that is illiberal. That is not what the open society, not what an open society looks like. And I right. and I I I think part of what's going on is that there's just a misunderstanding of the fact that there are, you know, uh, separate, (laughs) separate, like the institutional rules that codify and govern our lives are not the same as operationalized definitions in biology. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's actually Mm -hmm. very important that we keep them separate precisely because there are a lot of people that fall into categories that are gray areas um, and that can be the victims of state violence mm-hmm. if that gets, um, if that stuff gets codified. And yeah, so there's, really there's, tricky. there's real stakes here, right? Right. And it's, it's rough because I think for those folks like Andy who are making these arguments, what they have in mind that they're afraid of is, the wedge issue primarily of trans women in sports and like the negative implications of that for cis women in sports. And the the thing on the other end of the scale though, is like people getting murdered, right? There's like these really serious dangers to people's lives. If these things get codified and, you know, we haven't had time to get into the sports thing that we've talked about it here before. So one thing that I will say, is that I think that the fact that the uh, um like so think about Castor uh, Smenya, right? The the fact that her case was so difficult to decide, and the rules that ended up ruling that she was a man ended up being incredibly like ad hoc and right. sort of in, inconsistent across similar cases. They they that is evidence <laughs> of the difficulty of institutionally codifying a definition of sex. Yeah, that's a good point. And that's why it's good to like (laughs) lean towards self-identification instead. Right. 
or you know, like, I, like I just take that to be like, imagine, imagine if the boondoggle that that is that was that case. Imagine mm-hmm. the Trump administration sure. being in charge of those sorts of dis- determinations, and that being uh, about whether or not you have access to a passport. Right, like that's, that's some good that's, quality void right there. Yeah, I mean, like that's that's really what the stakes are, and um, I try not to be hyperbolic, mm-hmm. but it's like it's it's actually very significant, and it's not. And it, this is all uh, maybe I should say this is all independently of whatever you think of um, trans rights. This is talking mm-hmm. about like um, people who are intersex. Right. That that they would be victims. They would be the potential victims of state violence. Right. That's funny. I've had people say to me like, oh, well, that's such a small percentage. And we're talking about like, you know, there's no, but still a lot. People right? live, people's lives. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. So unfortunately, we're running short on time. And I want to, because you're part of our philosophical community, I want to get you in on the realism, anti-realism oh, yeah. lightning okay. round so that okay. you can get canceled later okay. on Twitter. So, right, this will be simultaneously harder and easier than any of the stuff Gosh. we've been doing. Cancel me. Before. Right. Okay. <laughs> um. Great. And so, again, the rules, you, all, all you can give us here is real or not real, okay. uh, but you don't have to define what that means. So okay. you can you can weasel your way out of this later. Good. Uh, so okay. are you Let's ready? Go. I'm so okay. ready. Okay. So the first thing, is your readiness real? No. Okay. What no. about the external world? Yes. External world is real. Okay. Phenomenal consciousness? Oh... I'm gonna go with no. Okay. So I'm guessing then qualia? Qualia? I mean, there's a sense in which it is. I'm gonna go with no, though. Okay. Yeah, I think I think to be consistent, I have to go with no. Okay. Free will? Yes. Free will is real. Okay. Selves? Selves. Yeah, this is the thing where I'm just too much of a pragmatist, where I just want to be like, well, there's a sense in which I think <laughs> selves are real. Yeah, selves are real. Okay. Personal identity. Uh, yes, personal identity is real. I'm yeah. not I'm not the same after the trans transmogrifier or whatever. Okay. Gender? <laughs> yes, gender is real. Okay. Race? As a biological category, no. Not real. Okay. <laughs> species species uh oh man species Uh, you can always tell if somebody's done a little science of biology if this one makes them miserable okay uh, yes here's what i want to say species are real higher taxa not real okay (laughs) it's a deep cut i appreciate that deep cut but like reptiles not real (laughs) okay Okay. Morality? Morality. Morality is real. Yeah. Okay. Right? Mm, yeah. I think I have to be a deflationist about rights. Not real? Um, they're, they're like a, they're like a, maybe I'll be a, c- a constructivist. They're real because we think they're real. <laughs> I'm giving you way too much freedom to hedge here. This yeah, is ter- totally yeah. ruining this thing. Uh, knowledge. Knowledge is real. Yeah. Okay. Modalities? Yeah, no, I don't think modalities are real. <laughs> okay. Gods? <laughs> Gods? No. Not okay. real. Society? Society exists. Yes, real. Okay. Numbers? Numbers. Fuck, man. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, no, I think I have to go with no. Okay. Well, uh, yeah. Uh, mm, yeah. Yeah, okay. I'm taking that answer. Abstract entities? No. No. Okay. Chairs? Yes, chairs are real. Science? Science. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, yes, science is okay. real. Okay. You're going to get totally canceled <laughs> for that one. Good job. Oh, um, hashtag cancel, Rachel. Natural hashtag laws? Natural laws. <laughs> no, not real. <laughs> okay. I'm going to wrap <laughs> this one up with one more. Fictional characters. Fictional characters, no, not real. Okay, well done. Congratulations. <laughs> yeah. You survived the gauntlet. All right, well, we are way over, unfortunately, but I want to let people know where to find you. would be the best way 
if nothing else, your Twitter handle. Oh yeah. Um, R underscore a underscore McKinney, uh, is me on Twitter. Um, just Google Rachel McKinney or Rachel Ann McKinney on, uh, um, uh, or Suffolk, Rachel McKinney, Suffolk university or something like that. And you'll, you'll find me, but yeah, my phone is blowing up with all these, uh, like the, <laughs> the latest Twitter crisis. Oh no. Um, is there another one since we started recording? Yes. Yes. <laughs> it never um, ends. It never ends. But thank you so much for having me. This was, this was really, this was a really great conversation. I, I really appreciate everything that uh, the, uh, the void is doing for us and the world we live in. Yeah, it's a growth industry, right? Um, <laughs> never, never a dull moment. So thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate you discussing through this stuff. And we'll, I'm sure we'll have you back on at some point to uh, get updates on um, World Gender Wars 3. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sounds good. And thank you so much. Thank you so much to all our listeners and especially our patrons for making all of this possible. Thank you to our 20-tier patrons, Jude Law's Canadian accent and existence makes my pussy throb. Good morning, Camp Quest. Jonathan Steele is a great dad fund. And Jesse Rabinowitz and Brenda Goodman. And thank you, as always, to our $40 top tier, clearly supports us deeply, Dave Maslich, you all are heroes. We really couldn't do this without you. If you'd like to support the show, uh, please leave us a five-star rating and a review on a, whatever podcast app you use. Please follow us on Twitter at ETVPod and support us financially if you can at patreon.com slash embrace the void. We really couldn't do this without you because remember, you are the void and the void is you. 